Hello, and welcome to episode number 69 of Future Chat from Unwind Media. Every week on this show, we take an hour or so to discuss all of the week's most interesting science and tech news, and we're very glad you're here with us today. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com to help out the show and get a free audiobook of your choice, as well as a free 30-day trial of their service. Please do visit audibletrial.com slash unwind. Uh, Audible.com have more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. So, Mike, uh, I'm very glad to have you, my my wonderful co-host, with me today. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question. Did you hear about this Harper Man stuff? I, I saw it in passing on my okay. Facebook feed, but it hasn't reached critical mass as far as extensive <laughs> <laughs> infiltration so, yet. You know what I saw on my Facebook feed today? Uh, from the On This Day app. It was exactly one year ago today that we did the Government Funding of Science episode of Future Chat. And uh, we where we discussed sort of how government funds science in Canada. We discussed some of the ways that uh, our current government does not necessarily fund science the way that a lot of scientists think they should. And uh, so this, this Harper Man uh, song was made by a Canadian scientist with Environment Canada. And he got a bunch of uh, 40 or something people to help him sing parts of it. Uh, he's actually a pretty, apparently, I've never heard of him, but apparently he's a pretty famous uh, Ottawa folk music player, I guess, or jazz music player. I forget which which kind of music he played. But so I didn't listen to the song because I'm not, I'm not super, I'm not trying to be super political about this. I just think it's interesting because he's he was let go from his position and I found it really interesting that he, I read a little bit into the story. I, d- I didn't listen to the song itself because it's just, you know, it's a kind of an sure. yeah. uh, anti-anti-science anthem. But apparently he was something like two weeks from retirement. And so that's why he decided to do this. And so now he's on administrative leave with pay. And then he's just evidently going to retire. But so he, he waited so until he the end of his career. So he got suspended because of this song? Yeah, because of the song. Okay. Uh but I guess he's he feels like, well, I'm done with my career, so I guess now's the chance to sort of speak out and say his piece. But uh, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of talk sort of in scientific circles in Canada about government funding of science and how a lot of scientists feel that they're not getting support at all from their government uh, in terms of pure research. But this just kind of, I would encourage you all, put a link to the video so you can go in and listen to Harper Man. But I just thought it was interesting to to kind of hear from an actual scientist who's sort of taking matters into their own hands. And that the fact that he waited until two weeks before retirement to do so, I found it very interesting. Also very prudent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it, it kind of speaks volumes about how people feel and that they can't express themselves, express their right. actual opinions until they're about to retire anyways. Right. Was... Well, I guess just going off on or continuing the political tangent, um, <laughs> just wanted to mention that I've seen a lot of the whole anti-democracy thing come up when talking about the Harper government. So this, I guess, is just kind of its own self-evident uh, kind of example of of how that how that works, and it's one of many non-democratic processes yeah. that the government has right now. So. Yeah, definitely Absolutely. interesting to see how it plays out come October. Yeah. Uh, so we do have a few pieces of follow-up from, I guess, weeks past. Uh, you have some from, I guess, one of the things we talked about 
back at Google I.O. time? Yeah. Yeah, so this is regarding Project Soli. Uh, for those who may not recall or for our fellow viewers who haven't heard about it since then, the Project Soli is the one where it's kind of the fingertip, uh, I guess. Wearable uh, computing like, device? Kind of, yeah. It's, it's just kind of like a interaction piece of interaction with wearable devices or just devices in general that gets implanted into your thumb and forefinger and mm -hmm. you can kind of do like either like a snap or kind of just rub it back and forth or side to side or um you know kind of do this type thing and it the whatever device is hooked up to will respond appropriately depending on what you have configured for it uh so they've actually released uh sent out emails for people to apply for dev kits Mm -hmm. uh, to develop apps and uh, interfaces to utilize the project solely. So it sounds like they're moving forward with it, and it's not just a uh, vaporware kind of pipe dream. It's, it's an actual thing that they're moving forward with. So there, there isn't a ton of detail about kind of what the kits look like or that kind of thing, but they're just sending out kind of uh, almost RFPs to people who, who would mm -hmm. like the dev kit and, and work on it. So... Um, it's yeah, it's cool to see this kind of stuff going forward, and yeah, it seemed fairly futuristic when you see the examples of it being used, um, and so it's, it will be good to see you know talented technological communities working on this. Sure, um, I mean I'm looking at the the gifs of the actual finger movements, and it it does seem very futuristic. You said they're actually like I guess electrodes or some kind of computing device in your fingers, like they have to implant them in your fingers. I think so. That's that's the way. That's from what I can recall. That's how it works. I get, yeah, they're saying a few dozen dev kits. I guess that's why, because that seems extremely futuristic. Like that's the vision yeah. of the future we had for like centuries down the road is implanting electronics into our fingertips. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Well, well people, well, there are people who have already done like the whole NFC inside their wrist or yeah, yeah, yeah. or that kind of thing. So implanting things inside of you isn't isn't new per se. It's just no. has become a mainstream implementation. I mean this is more like the NFC is kind of a passive implant, whereas this is an actual active thing that's working. Right. Like an NFC yeah, is just can be in a credit card. Right. Yeah, we I I don't imagine they'd be running wires through your arm. No, no, I think no, it, not wires. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, yeah, it will be interesting to see how they actually implement the technology and how it behaves. Yeah. First, like as far as interacting with what's in your hand and what's in your device and that kind of thing. Yeah. It, so given that this is not commonplace whatsoever, probably maybe one or two people have this right now, like the, the sort of crazy advanced, um, <laughs> I guess, uh, what do you even call it? Uh, first adopters actually have this would you consider having this or are you going to wait until like 10 percent of people have it and you're going to then you'll consider it if i was asked to have it i'd be getting paid for it i'd be like heck yes interesting if i was if i was the one paying for it to have it i probably wouldn't jump on it right unless. I, i'm just thinking about someone like opening my finger to put an implant in and i'm getting the heebie-jeebies about it <laughs> i'm sure you could request to be put under or something it's, it'd be more if you got like a paper cut it's like a paper cut is well, so like slick. a giant paper cut. Yeah, yeah. they fr freeze your hand. It's no, I'm not. I'm not worried about the pain. It's just the thought of it. Right. Yeah. Um, so next piece of follow up here, we got uh, 
we've we've talked before. I forget if we talked on the show or if we just talked offline about the testing of the Tesla, how they ended up breaking a couple of the testing machines that they were using for safety tests. Yeah, I think we talked about that on the show. Yeah. And so Consumer Reports has had their paws all over the Tesla. Yeah. And it broke Consumer Reports scale as well, so to speak. Yeah, they they tested it and they gave it a score of 103 out of 100. Mm-hmm. However that works. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they just recalibrated the scale so that the Tesla S would be the new standard of perfection. Yeah. Essentially. Like it it outperformed every other car they've ever tested. By by a wide margin. A, yeah. yeah. Which says a lot about it being an all electric vehicle. Yeah. And it sounds like they use the insane mode. Right. And then there's a mode above that that they're Ludicrous gonna release. Mode. Yeah. So yeah. they haven't even tested that, and this one already is that good. Yeah, they they were using, I guess it was the power and efficiency that made it so high on the ratings chart. Um, and this the ludicrous mode is even higher than than the insane mode they were using. Yeah. They did mention, at this point, I think they said, be wary of buying it, because simply because of the range thing. But I think that long range driving is kind of a a rare use case in most for most people i think a car is very urban centric and not uh and not at all relating to the overall car use um if and if you had to kind of if you considered uh fuel cars with the same circumstances as electric cars are facing now given that there aren't very many charging stations for electric cars if you were rating a car and you could only get fuel in your home or in a few designated spots throughout the country, but other than that, you could only get a few hundred kilometer range and your car would just run out of fuel and stop working, then I think they would similarly get bad marks. So it's basically the infrastructure of electric cars that are holding them back in that case and not so much the fuel. The fuel, the difference between electricity and gasoline is just the availability of chargers, the availability, availability of refilling. Yeah. One, I guess like you were saying, it's a, non-standard use case to have the extended range i'd probably i'd buy the electric car and if i was going on a road trip i just rent like a gasoline vehicle like or yeah for for the you know one time in five years that we're going to go on an extended road trip where we're going to need the longer range right i I wouldn't use that as a barrier to not have the electric vehicle from a day-to-day use perspective yeah exactly yeah that's you're probably kidding yourself to how often you'd need that extended range just even people who actually go out, like go camping, you know, drive out three hours, they they probably overestimate how often they do that versus how, how often they actually do that. And they're cheating themselves of having a really good electric vehicle for that. Yeah, exactly. Well, and they, there was also this news a few days ago that the, they set a new range record of, I think it was a father and son team uh, in Denmark. They were able to drive 452.8 miles uh, with the Tesla S and I should point out it has a des- an estimated range of 253 miles. So this is just about double. Right. Um, <laughs> so what the, apparently what they did is they drove 25 miles an hour for the entire trip, just trying to keep as steady as speed as possible. So it's right. not wear it down. They didn't have the air conditioning on. They had like basically tried to keep the power used to an absolute minimum. But yeah, they like doubled the almost doubled the fuel, right. uh, the fuel, the range capacity. It's crazy. The next piece of follow-up we have here 
this is one that you found. I didn't actually see this one. So yeah. talking about Google self-driving cars. Yeah, this is this one didn't really seem to be. It wasn't a big piece of news. There's more of a passing kind of blurb on one of the blogs that I read, or tech journals, I should say. And I guess news came out. You know, people for for those who who aren't aware, there's they are test driving the self-driving cars with uh, Google or Alphabet employees. Uh, inside of them and kind of making notes as it behaves and you know things that they need to work on and that kind of thing so they had one instance where um, a couple uh, alphabet employees were inside the self-driving car mm-hmm. and taking notes on it they came to a four-way stop the self-driving car came out to the four-way stop stopped obviously because it was aware that it was a four-way stop and it saw like it scanned the intersection and saw that there's a cyclist at yep. one of the other uh inter- at one of the other uh, roads coming up to the four-way stop the self-driving car had the right of way and so it started going but it's it sensed the cyclist i think can't remember what the term they used was Wait, uh, the one where you're bouncing doing a track stand is what they called it yeah track stand yeah i'd, ne- I'd never heard that term before but it's where you're basically just standing one place but kind of moving back and forth mm-hmm. to keep your your balance and the self-driving car sensed that the cyclist was kind of moving forward and every time the cyclist moved forward the self-driving car stopped <laughs> even though the cyclist didn't intend on actually entering the intersection right the self-driving car was was so cautious that it is like okay i'm gonna wait here till the cyclist moves even though the self-driving car had the right of way it had the intelligence to like be aware of what others were doing and it was and it was it was a bug but it showed how aware the car is well because it's, there it's, are it's a, it's a defensive bug yeah, like it's a lot of cars or drivers, I should say, don't recognize right of way or they'll just take the right of way even though they don't have it. Yeah. So for the self-driving car to be able to acknowledge that and not just say, okay, I have the right of way, I'm going. Yeah. That's that's what you want, right? Yeah, so, exactly. And in those cases, if you were in the driver's seat and the car was doing that, you could always just kind of manual override and just go and then right. just kind of put it back into self-driving mode if you needed to. But I, I don't know if they're going to work on an algorithm to kind of sense if the drive, if the cyclist is doing a track stand versus just trying to enter the intersection. But yeah, it, it's kind of a, an interesting and funny little thing. Like just, there's a kind of a play by play from the cyclist. I think it was and how, you know, the guys inside were laughing, the guys inside the yeah. car were laughing and taking notes and type, putting typing in a laptop because it was just humorous to see this guy on a cyclist on the bicycle doing his track stand and the car just kind of like inching forward, like, and stopping <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it was a game of like cat and mouse kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I don't know if you have ever done track standing at lights. Uh, yeah, I've not necessarily not, to the extent you see professional yeah, cyclists. Yeah, exactly. Doing it. I've done it. Yeah. But, uh, so like they're tiny movements too, and it's detecting this at the other yeah. side of it or uh, another corner of an intersection. Like this is, these are small movements over a large distance and it's still, yeah able to track it perfectly yeah i think yeah, it's I'd awesome. say probably like a couple inches back and forth yeah right so yeah very awesome yeah uh the last piece of follow-up i have here this is just something that i noticed in my listen through to the episode uh, we were talking about apples and containing arsenic i believe i said in our discussion yeah. about soylent yeah um apple seeds do not contain arsenic and if they do it's a trivial amount but they do contain cyanide. That's the compound I was thinking of. Um, and also, I, w- I think I said, or I, I insinuated that a couple of apple seeds, like don't eat your apple seeds because they'll kill you or they could kill you. We decided uh, that you'd have to eat a 
couple yeah, of apples. Yeah, you'd have to least. eat. You, it wouldn't be an accident. You wouldn't like accidentally swallow yeah. an apple seed and then die. And right. I also said like, don't bite it open, uh, right. which is true because that w- that is where they're actually in the seeds, and your body would just pass the seeds. But on that note, I was doing a bit more reading about cyanide, and apparent and actually, um, ASAP Science did a video talking about amounts of different poisons that can kill you in foods, I believe it was. And they were talking about cherries and cherries are obviously a very similar fruit to apples and, but they have a much larger pit. Like the pit is the seed obviously in the cherry and apparently they have uh, cyanide as well, but that one cherry pit, if you bite it open, does have enough cyanide that it could kill you or would probably kill you. Serious? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, you have to bite it open, but that's, I find that hard to believe. So you could grind up a cherry seed and it would kill you. Yeah. And we're feeding these cherries to our children and to people <laughs> around the world. I, cherry pits are pretty strong. I don't think a child could really bite one open. What if you're making like a cherry shake and you don't take the <laughs> pits out? Yeah, that would be a way to poison yourself pretty easily. <laughs> <laughs> do not do that. That's crazy. Yeah. But not, not uh, arsenic, cyanide. Yeah. Easy to confuse them. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, so the first main story we have here that I want to talk about, this is a pretty big story for myself in particular. Uh, I, my sister has celiac disease, so she is literally allergic to gluten. Her, her digestive tract does not handle gluten well. It basically completely shuts down. Uh, makes it very hard for her to, her to absorb nutrients when she if she has any gluten for the next several days after that, and she gets obviously very sick as well. Um, but so that made, that put my mom and I guess on to a lesser extent myself on high alert for reacting to gluten because it is uh, the kind of thing that passes through families genetically. And so my mom has been very careful to make sure that if I eat gluten and notice any effects like that, that I should go see a doctor and get it checked yeah. out. Uh, I think, sorry, before we, yeah. we go on, I think one of the key things, at least that I can remember about celiac disease, is when you're when you take gluten and your body tries to or the body tries to process it, it slowly degrades it does, your yeah. system as you eat it. So like yeah. it, it's not like you can just cheat and you'll get better. It's like every time you have like a slice of bread, you're making it worse and worse and worse mm-hmm. type thing. Yeah, the so, villi in your in your stomach and digestive tract, your colon especially. Uh, they get damaged. So I think it does kind of heal, but it takes months or years and not, it's right. not like a couple days. Yeah. Just okay. because you feel better doesn't mean your intestines are back to full strength. Right. But so my mom was on high alert thinking I might have gluten sensitivity, even if I wasn't fully celiac, that I might be somewhat sensitive to gluten. Uh, and there was a study that we have talked about on a past episode that talked about gluten sensitivity and how they had shown that it is uh, a noticeable effect. And so, uh, what came, a, a paper came out, uh, that has just recently been actually published, uh, in fall, in a follow up to that from the journal Gastroenterology. Uh, and so it was the same scientist. He took, he did a bigger study specifically looking, cause the, the original study studied gluten sensitivity, but it didn't exclusively study it and it didn't do a, uh, an extensive enough control, he felt. Because this scientist didn't think that gluten sensitivity was going to be a thing. So he was surprised by this result and decided to follow up on it. So uh, this is the same scientist that did the first study? Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
And so in this paper, he looked at 37 gluten sensitive patients who had self-identified as being gluten sensitive. And half of them were put on a no gluten diet. Half of them were put on a diet with gluten. Uh, or I guess there was, they cycled through. So sometimes they had high gluten, sometimes they had low gluten, and sometimes they had ones with no gluten, but they were told that they had gluten or like at various times. And they didn't know which they were going to have, uh, at any point. So it was completely blind. And every diet they were on caused similar amounts of pain, bloating, nausea, and gas, even the one that had no gluten in it. And they were also very careful to avoid uh, th- there are scientific uh, definitions of foods that cause stomach sensitivity issues like those. And they were all, they also made sure to keep all of the diets free of those other triggers. Uh, things like milk, for instance, tend to cause digestive issues in, in a large number of people. And so they kept all that, that kind of stuff out. So they, they identified just gluten sensitivity and there just there was no difference. These people felt if they thought they were eating gluten, they felt the same bloating and pain uh, gas that they they did on other diets. So like gluten is not a th- if you don't have celiac, if you don't have a disease that's where you have a specific gluten allergy, then you're you're not actually sensitive to gluten. You just think you are, and your At body. Least is the capable. study suggests that. Right, and obviously, when you get a, the kind of thing where a preliminary study shows one thing, you do a follow up study specifically looking at one aspect of it and it proves the opposite it calls for more research yeah but i have always been skeptical of this obviously this this scientist was too and i don't think he's going to let this die he's not going to do one study and be like okay see i proved it um it it's going to mean it means more research but for the time being the scientific conclusion makes sense from a from a sort of just common sense standpoint and the interesting thing that I always find with either nocebo or placebo, but in this case, nocebo, is that the effect, like the symptoms aren't fake. Like there's real bloating, there's real, like it's self-reported bloating, but it, yeah, believe that the patient's actually experiencing that. And it's not saying that, no, you're not actually bloated. It's just, it's not gluten sensitivity causing it. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, well, figure out what it is. And it could be entirely psychological. Like you're, your brain is weird like that, that if you, if you think you should be experiencing something, sometimes your body responds and tells you, yeah, you are feeling that. Yeah. In, in the same way that you can just tell yourself, okay, this isn't going to hurt or this doesn't hurt and it helps sometimes. Yeah. Kind of thing. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this research continues. Like, uh, yeah, you know, we're not uh, unfamiliar with people who say, oh yeah, I switched to gluten-free and now I feel so much better and that kind of thing. and for all you know, you might they might be feeling better, but it may not be because of the gluten aspect. It might be because just psychologically they're telling themselves they should start feeling better. Yeah. And they do. Yeah. So before before we move on, I just wanted there's one more study here that I just wanted to discuss before we move to the next topic. I'm just, I'm, I'll put a link to it, but really this is just for information. Uh, the headline of this New York Times article is many psychology findings not as strong as claimed, study says. Basically, a meta-study looking at a bunch of psychology studies and recreating their their premises and looking at the results. And they found that up to half of the studies were not reproducible by any means. 
specifically in psychology journals. And it kind of point, it just points to the idea that the scientific method, while it is a very powerful method, it can also be pretty easily manipulated when you're looking, when you're looking for sort of pretty obscure effects. And just that you can like a lot of these, you call it, I call it pop psychology. I think it's called pop psychology in, in a lot of cases where you get these studies that look at something that everyone sort of thinks is true one way or the other. And it's kind of more of a headline grabber than actual in-depth science. And you'll, it's the kind of article where you'll see a, a very attention grabbing headline and then you'll read down and it's like, well, this doesn't seem like it's really proving that thing. Right. And so that, that's what they were trying to do with this, this meta study. And basically you can look, we, we talked to, uh, we talked about one of the studies that they looked at, which was this, this, canvassing study yep. for same-sex par- couples yep. and just finding that it was completely effectively made up like it was impossible to actually well, like the do data the study. was literally fabricated yeah it was, it was yeah. impossible to do the actual study like they tried to do right. the same study and found that they just couldn't and so yeah. sorry just to back up when you said that they couldn't reproduce it just in theory like the practicality of doing it they, they couldn't or they couldn't get the same result both like okay yeah the the combined results was that there were a bunch of papers that didn't hold up that didn't hold water at all okay yeah so i just wanted to you can go and look they have uh they go in depth about a few of the different studies and i just think that it's kind of important to take not just psychology studies there there are a lot of things like take studies with a grain of salt they're not conclusive they're just evidence for one thing or another yeah Especially if it makes it into the mainstream media. Yeah. They're often designed to make it to the mainstream media and results are cherry picked or kind of disclaimers are left out and that kind of thing. So what I usually try to do is when I come across news about a study, I'll kind of follow back all the links till I get to the original source. Yeah. You know, whether it's from a university or whatever. And I'll use that as kind of my okay, what's this actually about versus reading in, you know, e-news now and see what the, you know, the writer there who doesn't have a background in science try to pull from, from the article. Yeah, exactly. You see that a lot. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you wanted to talk about the, the galaxy note five S pen, which I think is hilarious by the way. (laughs) (laughs) The, The fact I want to talk about it or the whole thing, the whole thing. (laughs) <laughs> right. No, I find it hilarious too that it's even a thing because Yeah. So for background, this this story's actually kind of developed since it first started coming out. Yeah. So at first it was like, okay, a handful of people, I don't know if there was exact numbers, but a handful of people have accidentally put their Note five S pen in backwards. So instead of tip in with the butt sticking out like facing outwards, they've mm-hmm. put the butt in first with the tip sticking out. For one, I don't know how you do that accidentally. Yeah. Like you're holding the pen normally, so you just put it back in. But mm-hmm. that aside, they did that, and they push it all the way in, and then tried taking it out again, and it wouldn't come out. Yeah. And upon trying to take it out, either forcefully or just jiggling it or whatever, they either couldn't get it out or they got it out, but the phone itself lost functionality 
where it wouldn't sense the pen getting pulled in and out. Yep. And that triggers certain apps to come up within the phone itself. So you could still use the pen after doing that. The phone still worked, but just the functionality of sensing when the pen was in and out would be lost yep. when you when you had that and tried pulling it out after putting it in wrong. So the story kind of developed and it turns out that the instructions how to put the pen in and literally a warning saying, do not put this pen in backwards or your phone will stop working is right in the user manual. Yeah. So there's that. But that more speaks to the fact that they knew it was a flaw and didn't well, correct it. Right. So, so that's kind of what people at first people were like, Oh, we didn't know about this. How, whatever It's like, Oh, it's in the manual. Oh, well it still shouldn't be a thing. It's like fair, but like, I think there's, I think both are at fault. There's no reason you should put a pen in backwards. And especially if it's been in the manual, but if Samsung knew that this could happen and yeah, there's a, they probably thought, okay, a certain percentage of people will be doing this. They will wreck their phones, mm-hmm. but it's not worth changing the design So to, to do this. Yeah, I see a simple fix here. I mean, it's, okay. it's not a fix 100% of the time, but all you have to do, the when someone activates their Note 5 for the first time and takes the pen out, pop up a notification, by the way, don't put the pen back in backwards. It could break the pen and your phone. Well, see... That that's no different than the manual. But nobody reads the manual. People see a pop up; they have to dismiss it. I read the manual. You read your whole phone's manual. I flip through it. It's not that long. I don't. I don't read all the legal stuff in it. I don't know about that. <laughs> so I, I've never gone through a manual on my phone. The the simple fix, the actual simple fix, because apparently this is the first iteration of the note. That's this issue has been a thing. Yeah. Like every note has had the S pen. This is the first time that I guess you've been able to put it in backwards. Right. I that think. it would fit all the way. That would actually fit. Yeah. yeah. So the other, the other change that you could have is just design the phone so that the butt doesn't fit in the hole. Like you just have like a kind of countersunk region that the butt fits yeah. in. So it's flush, but mm-hmm. it doesn't actually fit in the hole itself. And I, I'm assuming that's how the other pens yeah, were designed. Yeah, that's a solved problem. <laughs> right? So I don't know why they changed it this way. Yeah. But that, that's how it is. And I don't know. I, I don't think this is going to become like a class action lawsuit thing, even though I think no. people are trying to make it a class action. But it's like, no, it's in the manual. There's Legally, they covered their bases. It shouldn't have been that way, but that's right. what happened. They might end and up I replacing th- some phones, but... right. But that's the thing. I think they figured it was cheaper to just replace phones than to reiterate or redesign the the S Pen and how it goes in and that whole thing. Yeah. So for sure. And that's we were talking about this the other day when it comes to vehicle recalls. That it's a similar thing. It's a bit more serious because you're talking about life and death with vehicle recalls. But companies will literally see: is it cheaper to change the design or is it cheaper to just settle lawsuits and? replace vehicles as needed yeah when these problems arise which is really sad oh it is really sad because you're literally placing value on people's lives yeah so anyway that's another story but yeah that's this that's the s pen saga so that's what the pengazi yes uh, hashtag there is referring to way to start a flame war (laughs) well see (laughs) people people started saying pengate i'm like come on you had Bendgazi. Why wouldn't you say Pengazi as as well? Like yeah. Well, people had Bendgate as well. I know it's like, but 
Benghazi just flows better. Yeah, these, these are all like no, I'm not. I'm not talking about yours specifically, but all of these names are terrible. Like, just people need to stop. Journalists need to stop doing this. <laughs> I I love sticking words together, but taking something like a, an attack on a, a city or a what was it? A, it was a specifically the consulate, the U.S. consulate in Libya, right? Or talking about this White House scandal where people were recording conversations and there was a, a whole bunch of uh, corruption going on in the government. Like, these are not things to make light of. I don't it, think it's making light of it. It's just... It yeah. is. It, I, I know what you mean. People, they're trying mean. to be clever, but they're... Right. The one half of the cleverness is not... Like, it's just a, not a good word to use. They're... I don't know. I get what they're trying to do. Like, they're trying to be like, oh, look, it's a scandal, just like that other scandal. But I don't, I don't right. love it. Eventually, it will non-ironically come full circle. There will be some issue with like drinking water in a city, a big city, and they'll call it Watergate, and people will be like, "Oh, ha 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 ha!" But like, it's, that's going to happen unironically. People are right. not going to get the reference, and it's going to be terrible. That's all I have to say on that matter. <laughs> yeah. All right, we got some car news here. So there's a few different things that have come up in the last week to do with cars. Uh, I'm just going to open the floor to you. Because <laughs> you have a couple. I have one, but... Yeah. So I guess the first one, the more recent piece of news um, has been... I think we talked in years in shows past. I think it was with Google Y mm-hmm. when we talked about the fully autonomous city. Or yeah. the the Google city or something. I can't remember how we talked about it, but it was a, kind of a little segregated area where you could just test out all the cool technology as a real life application thing. So the university of Michigan has kind of tried to construct a similar uh, test city for autonomous cars where it simulate urban environments and, and that kind of thing. Uh, just kind of almost like a, TV set type thing mm-hmm. where I don't think there's pictures of it or anything or video, but just the concept of it having having a site where you could just bring autonomous vehicles that haven't been licensed for street use the same way that the uh, Google or I guess Alphabet self driving cars have been now mm-hmm. that they're they're being tested in in real life applications, but this is a test city where where you can bring autonomous vehicles Google or not. And uh, you being corporations, I don't think anyone yeah, can just bring no. their vehicle there. But it's just kind of a, a safe place to be able to do that. And aside from legality of, of road use. Right. So I, I think it's a good proof of concept for, for other kind of designated cities for testing these types of things. Um, I know, actually, I don't think we even have it in the notes. but there is news of Apple having a similar place set up for their own self-driving vehicles. I don't think they were having a place set up. They were trying to license or borrow or lease, whatever you want to call it for property uh, space to test their autonomy or test some kind of autonomous vehicle tech, because the the only thing that facility did was test anonymous or anonymous uh, driverless vehicles, autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was supposed to be like a military test site. I think it was formerly a military to... test site, and now it's yeah. just a an open space. 
Yeah, so they're trying to yeah they're trying to get at that, and it was all through communication that it, they were kind of hinting that it was for autonomous vehicles. So yeah. that's kind of where the rumors of Apple kind of coming out with their own yeah self driving car has come from. So yeah, companies are are looking for places like these. So I guess once it moves out of the you know top secret confidential realm, then they can bring it to these other places where they can kind of test it in real life scenarios with yeah. you know pedestrians and like simulated pedestrians like kind of cardboard like uh, 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 kind of walking into the street to yeah. see if the car runs them over or not <laughs> have some guy doing a track stand <laughs> yeah exactly right so yeah um yeah i thought it was it was kind of cool that that they came out with that that kind of thing hopefully uh, so it looks like this this testing ground is a partnership between the university state and federal governments and auto and technology companies okay so, Hopefully yeah. that government and university involvement means that there'll be some openness to it and that we'll, we'll actually get to see what's going on and it won't all be locked down so that people, companies are sort of running these tests in obscurity because yeah. it'd, be, it'd be interesting to see what's actually going on. Yeah. yeah. So actually, when I look at it, it looks like there is a, there are pictures of the test city kind of on this, this link that, that I have, but it's not, doesn't really go into details. Like, Oh, here's a pedestrian and here's a cyclist. So, okay. They're not very useful, but Mm. I don't know. It'll be cool. Yeah. Like you said, to hear news coming out of it, if there's some sort of transparency about it to say, Oh yeah, this company was able to, you know, not kill 50 people. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, uh, why don't you, yeah. What else happened in the world of, I guess it's in autonomous cars, but in terms of remoteless or remote cars. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's more about how cars are becoming more technologically advanced and integrating uh, internet functionality into their, their systems, you know, cloud services or GPS or any of that kind of stuff. And like cars are already very computer based, but now they're kind of linking those computers with the internet mm-hmm. so that, you know, you can you know, unlock your car from your phone or you can, you know, kind of call your car over, like, you know, from a driverless car aspect, you Mm -hmm. can kind of summon your car over to you. So companies are starting to integrate those types of functionalities into their vehicles, but that also opens them up to vulnerabilities. And there's a group of people that decided to see how far they could exploit these vulnerabilities the same way that hackers will try to hack into, you know, secure systems to say, look how weak your security system is. You need to do something about this. Yeah. Um, so these guys, they, they had been working on this project and they made a video uh, with Wired with a, uh, it was a Jeep that was hooked up to a, um, to a computer in the Jeep that communicated with whatever server. And they were able to, with the knowledge of the, I think it was just the IP address mm-hmm. of the, of the system and uh, various other kind of specific to the car, but not unobtainable information Mm -hmm. about the car. They were able to overtake the system and literally drive the vehicle, like overtake the, the operation of the vehicle with a driver in it and, you know, either accelerate, decelerate. Um, I don't think they were able to steer it. Okay, but they were able to accelerate, decelerate, control the AC, control the radio, pretty much anything that was hooked into the car's 
system, like to the car's computer that right. wasn't like mechanical, they they were able to control that. And they did a video of it with the driver in it. And it's it's actually a pretty interesting and entertaining video when you when you watch it. And this is this is different because the driver had full knowledge what they are doing. Yeah. They obviously gave them access, they gave them the information they would need to hack into it, but it's not information that would be impossible to get if you really wanted to get it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's kind of, yeah, again, a proof of concept that this is possible to hack into systems like this. You better kind of change the way that you're hooking up the computers to your servers so that this can't happen because, you know, yeah, you can do some pretty bad things if you leave that open. Yeah. I mean, they're talking uh, here. There's a picture about a picture of the car in a ditch after the brakes were disabled. Like that's terrifying. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, if you watch the video, like they didn't run it into the ditch. No, no, they no. Just basically rolled yeah, it in. Yeah. They kind of just kind of steered it yep. into the ditch. Yep. Yeah. So it's like, but these guys were intentionally not trying to kill the person. Exactly. But yeah. they could have very, they could have very easily killed this person yep. if they wanted to. And so these are guys. These are white hat hackers. They're the guys that are working with car companies to protect them, right? Like they're planning. Well, they on are a now. Talk. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're they're kind of like this is what we've been able to do. We did this to your vehicle. Let uh, like help us help you yeah. is kind of what they're saying. Um, they're not from the auto companies, no. but they're saying we are we are able to do this. We want to help you so that this can't happen anymore. Right. The same way that companies will hold hackathons mm-hmm. to identify weaknesses and there's obviously rewards and compensation for that, yeah. but it's in the best interest of these companies to get the people to do it on their side versus maliciously. Exactly. And, and on the other side of it. So we've talked about pwn to own the, the conference where browsers like web browsers and different securities are, are broken for, for fun and profit. Mm-hmm. I, I see this kind of thing happening for cars in the future. When, once they are, once every car is on the network that yeah. there will be competitions and, vulnerabilities disclosed and then people get prize money in exchange for their ideas and their, their hacks. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that all this, this hacking to these cars was done remotely. They weren't anywhere near the vehicle. Yeah. So that's crazy. That, yeah. Well, it's on the internet. So, right. So it's one of those things that you want, you want this functionality into cars. There's no one saying, Oh, we shouldn't have that. But it's like, if you're going to do it, do it properly. And without compromising the safety and security of, of the people using your vehicles, because that's that's one of the things that has been around for a while that you'll get vehicles or just devices with, you know, smart integration, say like appliances. But no one knows what type of security did or didn't go into those those connections and the infrastructure kind of talking to your devices. So you have to kind of be wary of how much vulnerability you're letting into your system by hooking up these things to your, to your internet and your, your home network kind of thing. Yeah. Like I know with the, was it Xiaomi's, some of their devices or just some of the Chinese phone manufacturer devices that when you hook them up, they would give, they would start kind of opening a hole in the fence to your security. I, don't I, think I know I that, that that's been in the news in the past. I can't remember off the top of my head specific devices mm. or, or companies names, but that's that's been kind of one of those buyer beware type things. Is when you're buying, especially knockoff. I think that's the thing. If you're buying knockoff, say wearable like fitness bands, yeah, then that can open yourself up to a lot of pain if right. the company either unintentionally or intentionally 
leaves holes into your security by by connecting those devices. So yeah, hmm. yeah, it's definitely something to to keep in mind as as our cards get more connected. Uh, so the last piece of car news is something that I that literally just came up on my feed this morning from NASDAQ. And so it's a, it's a report that BMW, the, the major car group in Europe, is looking in response to stricter carbon, carbon emission laws that are coming up. Uh, they're looking to transition all of their car models to electric or primarily electric within the next 10 years. And so that means that every BMW model would have an electric drivetrain as opposed to a gas motor or a gas engine. And so basically what you'd end up, the only gas that would ever be involved in the car would be a tank to that where the, there would be a small engine that would convert the gasoline to electricity, which would then be used to, to charge the battery. And the goal of this is something we've talked about before where, Companies will go all out trying to fight something like carbon emissions, the regulation of carbon emissions, and trying to improve gas mileage before giving up gas-powered vehicles. And so, but while they're doing that, while they're fighting tooth and nail to keep that as alive as long as possible, they're also doing research and looking into other areas to try to get past these these emission targets. And so, this is the kind of this is the thing that BMW has been doing. They've been fighting this, but now. Seeing that it's a losing fight, they're basically now saying, all right, in the next 10 years, we're going to be moving to a much more efficient strategy. And as opposed to using, uh, and it's, this is kind of an interesting solution to having an all electric vehicle, is that if you are taking short trips in a car that has a, an electric motor, but has a, a gasoline engine that charges the bat- that can charge the battery, is that if you're taking short trips, you don't use any gasoline. It just the tank stays full and you're using just all electricity. It, it only happens on that lar- longer trip that you end up using any of the gasoline. And at that point, if you need to keep going, you can fill the gas tank again and use more gasoline to turn electricity. But most of the time, you're going to be relying just on the electricity, just on the batteries. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was yeah, it's really awesome. Yeah, I wonder what the efficiency is of the gasoline. Yeah, when too. it's charging the battery and then converting that to mechanical energy versus directly converting. I'd imagine directly converting the gasoline combustion to the mechanical energy would be more efficient. Um, I think that the conversion of electrical to mechanical energy in the in electric cars is much more efficient than the gas to uh, mechanical. But this is going gas to electric, then electric to right. So I think the mechanical. energy loss in the gas process is the limiting factor. I don't think that there's any there's a huge additional loss in converting the electricity to mechanical. Okay. In the last step, that that would be my guess, because otherwise this wouldn't. I mean, for a while it would be, but like in the in the long term, it wouldn't be better than just having a gas powered car, having this sort of hybrid. Uh, what they call a plug-in hybrid. So it, it might be that this is sort of the way to wean society off of gasoline is to be like, so we have this gasoline engine as your safety net, but you're going to be right. using electricity most of the time. Right. Yeah. Well, you could probably have people switch to that without them even knowing. You, like if they're still gassing up and their tank yeah. just never runs dry. It's and, like, wow, this is amazing. And the tank is tiny. <laughs> 
Yeah. So they're getting more efficient, but also mainly trying to rely on electricity first and then as a backup having gasoline available. Yeah. All right. I guess that's it for, for car news. Uh, there's a there's a piece of Facebook news here that I just found interesting. You said you hadn't seen this. Um, I hadn't read it. Right. I saw it. Okay, you saw headline. the headline. I hadn't looked into it. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting to point out. Facebook is taking over the world. Uh, last week, uh, Mark Zuckerberg announced that one billion different people used the service. I don't know exactly in one day. what that means. Yeah, in one day. Yeah. Sorry, one billion different people used the service. In a 24-hour period, yeah. which is, as you know, there's just over 7 billion people on Earth. That's one in seven people on Earth used it. That's a little bit terrifying. Um, that kind of is starting to, in terms of people who are connected to the Internet on a, on a daily basis, that's pretty much everybody. There aren't that many people who are online in a sort of, I'm 24 hour yeah, period. like always on kind of way that yeah. most of the people who are online are in either well on their way to being developed countries or developed countries. And so this is, they're all, they're reporting 1.5 billion active monthly users, which means, which translates, I guess this is the most compelling math in this whole story is that if they have 1.4 billion monthly active users and they had 1 billion this on this day that means that in that one day two-thirds of people who have an account logged into it at some point which is that's pretty crazy right um yeah that's not that's not a huge piece of news i don't know if we have to discuss it if you have anything to add but i just thought it was worth pointing out it's kind of a milestone it's a big round number yeah i know well what was facebook's initiative for their give everyone access to the internet Internet internet.org Think? Yeah, yeah, I think it's the internet.org thing. Yeah, and really, is have everyone the opportunity to go on Facebook. Yeah, not really. <laughs> yeah, it like it is, but I like I like the way they're painting it. But that's what it is. And yeah. I've read, we I think we talked. I can't remember if we talked about it on the show, but I know I read an article a couple months ago about how Facebook does deals with the uh, cell phone providers to allow facebook access as a part of the plan and to yeah. not count against the data cap so just that on its own their initiative to do that has brought them to the point where they can have you know one sixth or one seventh of the world log onto facebook within 24 hours because they've made it impossible to not do it yep because it, they made it so easy to um and you know now that they have you know their daily memories thing they you know, guarantee people to log on almost every day because the little notification saying, Oh, you have memories with so-and-so this day. Yeah. So even if you weren't planning on checking it that day, which again, like you said, most people do go and check Facebook at least once a day, they'll, it's, you know, prompting you to do that or with notifications or, or any of that kind of stuff. They, they make it very easy to just check Facebook. Yeah. And yeah, whether that's good or bad is up to your own judgment. <laughs> yeah. I I think it's def I think Facebook's good. I think it it brings people together, but I think it wastes a lot of time too. It does, yeah. I think it does both very <laughs> well. People yeah. I mean people are social inherently, so yeah. A platform that yeah. connects people is going to be popular. Yeah. If it connects them well and and Facebook does, so yeah. Yeah. I've actually noticed recently and maybe it's just cuz I'm looking for it more, but 
I've noticed when I when I make when I post something on Facebook and it's either public or friends of friends, but say for the sake of discussion, public, I see a lot more people who aren't my friends but who are mutual friends with someone else mm-hmm. comment or like my stuff. Okay. Because they'll say, "Oh, so and so like this." I'm like, "I don't know who that is." Yeah, like I I know it's a friend of a friend because when someone likes my thing, it will pop on on someone else's timeline saying, "Oh, so and so liked this." Yeah, right. And if you let your status or your post be public or friends of friends, then we'll let other people who aren't your friends like and comment on that as well. Yeah, and I know that I think I take you in a comment one time, and that person didn't allow friends of friends. Yeah. So you couldn't comment I, on it? I was it. tagged in a post and I couldn't comment, or I was tagged yeah. in a comment and I couldn't comment back. Yeah, that was weird. Right. Yeah, but it's, and it's part of that, like, well, my approach is, if it's a friend of a friend, I trust that that person, I, I, there's no reason for me to not do it. I, I don't have an issue with public posts right, anyway. Right, exactly. But if someone was to do something malicious, ideally it's not a friend of a friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, right, you trust that your friends have good choice in their friends, I guess. Yeah. But. Or at least not malicious friend, like yeah, not malicious friends of friends, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. You have a story here about uh, a space elevator, which I did not see at all, but sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, to clarify or qualify, this is just a patent for an idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But space elevators are always cool, even if they're just ideas of ones. Yeah. So their their idea is to have a pneumatic pressure based almost like a tower i guess mm-hmm. be the thing that extends upwards into the sky okay or space for this matter and i think it they said something and i still don't know what they meant by it but they they say that they actively guide the center of gravity towards things like hurricanes so that the tower won't fall down now I don't know what that means. Yeah, that sounds that's a weird sentence. <laughs> yeah. I like there's words in there that I recognize, but I don't know <laughs> what it means as a sentence. Yeah. Like and how like I don't know how guiding it towards a hurricane is going to help it. Mm-hmm. But I guess to me that sounds like they're going to have this thing in the middle of like an ocean, say. Yeah. And they have a little platform at the bottom with this giant power that's powered or that's supported up by like basically air pumps and they'll have an elevator kind of go up the center of it maybe and that's how they get up to space but the the idea that was illustrated in the article is very vague it sounds very vague it's so it's hard to kind of conceptualize what it's supposed to be but Either way, they got a patent for it, so I don't know if that says more about the patenting process <laughs> or about the reporting, but yeah, that's that's what it is. But I guess if if a company and it's a Canadian company, mm-hmm. and it sounds like they're serious about it, they have I think a dozen employees or something that have been working on this. So I think at this point they're looking more for investors to jump on board with them and actually get them to the point where it's a thing versus just a patent and an idea, right? But I don't know. I think a space elevator is kind of cool. All, all the news I'd heard up to this point was based on nanotechnology for integrating that into space elevators because that has that high uh, tensile, tensile strength, strength yeah. that you need mm-hmm. to to build a space elevator. But this sounds like it's a different approach to it, so that's always good. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how it plays out in in practice. 
the thing that I think is most interesting here, this whole thing goes very vague, but it also says the next step is to build a 1.5 kilometer tall demonstration. They call it a demonstration tower. Yeah. To, to, to try it, to test the concept. And it's going to be, they say five to $10 billion and three to five years to complete the demonstration tower. Which puts us five years out at having this 1.5 kilometer tower, which seems outlandish enough, but then only another three years to finish the whole tower to space. Right. I don't know how you build that, but I feel like it would take longer to build a full one to space than it would to take to build a 1.5 kilometer one, even if you've mastered the technique. I'm assuming they'll just continue on with the 1.5 kilometer one. I guess, but that seems (laughs) even then. Well, because a lot of it's probably putting in, you know, the foundation of the tower and the stuff that's actually going to support it. The actual lengthening of the tower is probably the easiest part. It's the same thing when you're building a building. The thing that takes the longest is the foundation and the bottom structure. And then once you're there, it just shoots up really quickly. But at the same time, you're going to space. Like, how how do you get... I guess the, it's probably pre-built and not... Like, they're not pouring concrete up... 50 kilometers in the atmosphere, but how, how do you get these parts up? Do you like, you can't use a helicopter above a certain, like above the height of, no, you just use the elevator. I, so would you build the top at near ground level and then just sort of insert links into the chain? Like, I, I just don't see how, no, you I don't would. think you'd pre build it. You just build it up. Like, I don't know. What if you built it horizontally and then floated it up to vertical. <laughs> floated? How do you mean? What do you mean floated it up? Well, the way I've seen uh, space elevator concepts, some of them are envisioned as towers, but this sounds more movable. Like it sounds more like a tube than an actual building. Yeah. Right. So what if you had, you like sort of built it on the ground, sort of like a, like snaked out, or I guess you could have it in one long thing, but that'd be really long. And then you just attached helium balloons or some or some kind of buoyant thing, and then just kind of floated the top up. Right. Or maybe rocket propelled or rocket assisted, but at, this seems so. The concept of the space elevator seems awesome. Like if you could build it somehow in situ, but I don't think you could. I, once you have it, it's the science seems valid. But bef- while you're building it, it just seems like it would take an astronomical amount of energy. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, but it seems very odd. Yeah, and I, I'm interested to see what's happening. But I this eight year, approximately six to eight year time frame seems way too fast. Yeah. So I guess for clarification's sake, the te- the company's called Thoth. Thoth technology, yeah, T H O T H. So yeah, they they were granted a U.S. patent okay. for the technology. So not even a Canadian patent, which is impressive. That the it's not just a minor Canadian patent; it's a U.S. patent. And uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see where this goes. Yeah. Very odd. Uh, I'm <laughs> I'm just completely baffled by the this concept, but. All more power to them if they can do it. Yeah. Uh, the last story I wanted to talk about today 
is just an, I guess this is almost basically an open letter that the director of NASA wrote to Congress. So if you're not familiar, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, space shuttles are no longer running. They were decommissioned, uh, apparently Saturday, yesterday, uh, will have been 1500 days since the space shuttle touched down for the last time. Uh, they had a couple of different accidents and it basically, the technology was too old to be viable long-term statistics wise. Like they wanted to, you want your mission to have a very good chance of success. And that just wasn't going to be the case in the, into the future. And so they decided a based on our funding and based on the future of it, it wouldn't, it's not worth it. We need to invest in the next generation. And so, yeah, so he, uh, Charles Bolden is the administrator of NASA. Uh, he was an astronaut, uh, flew aboard the space shuttle apparently. But so he wrote this piece in Wired, talk, talking directly to Congress, saying basically invest, we need investments in NASA because right now, uh, we, uh, Americans, I don't want to say we, but North Americans are using Russian rockets, the Soyuz capsule specifically to get to the International Space Station and to get to space. And so people are being launched on the, this Russian rocket, whereas Americans are using commercial company uh, rockets to get stuff up to the International Space Station, up to space. Uh, but so basically the, the argument is NASA keeps writing checks to Russia to put people in space at a higher cost than it would, than it would be if NASA were doing it. NASA has the, the technology for the next generation of space, for the next generation of the space shuttle to be able to put people in space for quite a bit cheaper, like millions of dollars cheaper than Russia are able to do it at the moment. Uh, so it goes into to a lot of detail. Uh, we don't need to go through the whole thing, but I, I kind of wanted to, to get your thoughts on sort of the next generation of space shuttle and, and the role you think NASA might be able to have in, in getting there. Or if you think there's sort of more private companies that are going to be doing it. Well, we we talked about this in our space yes. episode, and uh, I think we we all agreed that NASA still had a role to play. Yep, in space exploration and and getting to space, but it's not realistic to put the entire burden of funding and all that kind of stuff on NASA and the government. Mm-hmm. And that's where the the commercial for profit uh, private companies come to play. And, you know, NASA has that experience, you know, they've had their, their space shuttle failures as, as well as successes. Um, but yeah, I think as far as relying on, you know, another government's program to get you to space, that's not a realistic or, or prudent thing to do. Um, and yeah, I, I guess if the, if the commercial companies aren't at the point where they're trusted to, or not able to bring people into space, then yeah, you need to kind of be bucking up and, and reigniting the space program on American soil to get your own people to space. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like, I guess you can uh, allude it to if your car goes into the shop and you start carpooling with your neighbor, you're not just like, Oh, well I guess I don't need a car anymore. And then just <laughs> always relying on carpooling. It's like, well, no, like it works for a bit of time, but it's not realistic to always be relying on that because you might stop being friends with that neighbor or they might nuke you. <laughs> you, you, you this you, metaphor right? is getting twisted. <laughs> <laughs> so 
it, it's yeah, it's it's kind of like okay, well, this this worked for a bit. It was never intended to be permanent, so let's stop treating it as if it's a permanent solution. Yeah, but because yeah, for from the U.S. standpoint, you know, space investment isn't the most in their eyes. It's not the most beneficial investment, even though in a lot of ways it can be and is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this this letter only kind of further illustrates that point that that they need to they need to start changing their their perspective on this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like he finishes the letter saying, you know, we are the country that kissed the moon. We're the country that's roving Mars. We're the country that continues to reach new horizons, including most recently Pluto. We ought to be able to get our own astronauts to space. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's more, it's, it's more like, okay guys, like let's have some pride in, in our program and kind of start taking care of our own business kind of. Yeah. And then the nice thing that I think that the NASA are doing is that they've seen this trend of government funding of space uh, kind of diminishing and trying to rely more on the, the public sector to support NASA. And so what they've been trying to work on is getting this two-pronged approach where NASA takes care of space research in deeper space, like sending probes out to, to farther places, but allowing private companies to sort of focus on around our planet and commercializing spaceflight and coming up with different ways to try to make money off of it. There have been numerous reports of people trying to develop technology to be able to go to nearby asteroids and mine them and send the the stuff back to Earth, which we've talked about before seems like a really bad idea. Sent like sending, also amazing. <laughs> sending asteroid material back to Earth uh sounds a lot like an asteroid <laughs> it just like it really does <laughs> but in terms of splitting the space into deep space research and near space sort of commercialization possibilities i think it's a really interesting idea and so it, that would rely on for for the international space station and other things close to earth it would rely on commercial uh, things like SpaceX, which we've talked about many times. And apparently Boeing is, is also hugely in on, uh, partnering with NASA to produce different space vehicles. And I, I think it's a, it's a good way to go splitting things like that, getting help from private companies, but also being able to do your own research and being able to fund at least part of what you're trying to do. Yeah. Right now, is there any incentive for the private companies to be putting their own money into R&D from from the government like saying like okay if you you know we'll we'll pay back you know 4% on anything you invest into R&D for the benefit of NASA's program kind of thing like i know i know they have contracts yeah. and they get paid on kind of an a la carte basis mm -hmm. from what i can imagine but I think if there isn't already, there should be a program where, you know, if NASA wants to kind of develop their program, it's like, okay, well, we don't have the flexibility in our budgets to be doing that. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Tesla Motors or SpaceX, I guess mm -hmm. uh, you have, you have the funds to, to do that. We'll, we'll pay you back on plus more on that research. If you can do that for us, but you know, it'd be paid back over a certain amount of time. Yeah. They want to get to where they can launch people to space within say two years, but the, to, for them to do that, it would take 20 years right. with the funding that they're able to get. So it's like, okay, well 
we'll still pay you back over, say, 10 years if you can get us to where we want to be in two years. Yeah. So I, I think that'd be good to, to have yeah. if they don't already have that. Well, I mean, the, SpaceX is also working on reusing their rockets, which would make spaceflight immensely cheaper. And so if they're able to do that, you don't have to basically throw away billions of dollars or millions, I guess, in this case of dollars with every launch. You're going to save a lot of money and be able to launch a lot cheaper as well. All right. Well, that's all we have for the show today. Uh, Mike, if you don't have anything else to add, I will thank our listeners once again for listening to this week's future chat. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank audible.com for supporting our show. Don't forget that you can help us out by visiting audibletrial.com slash unwind right now to start a free 30 day trial and get a free audiobook. I'll let you know that we'll be right back here next week with more science and tech talk. And you can find past episodes of the show and much more at unwindmedia.com slash future chat. See you next time. Sayonara. Bye.